do me a courtesy, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings. We'll be in chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 9 through to the end of the chapter. So a lot, uh, for lack of a better term. It's, um, it's interesting to me the way that the ending of a story can significantly impact your perception of the narrative that precedes it. Like there's, there's certain cases in which the ending of a sequence of events kind of either ruins or illuminates everything that came before it. So this happens really all the time in literature, in storytelling, in things like movies. Uh, Stephen King is considered to be one of the great horror uh, science fiction suspense novelists of our generation, but it's sort of universally recognized that he is such a bad uh, He's, he's a terrible author when it comes to ending his stories. And so very often, if you read reviews of Stephen King books, it'll say things like, it was great until the ending. So as long as you can handle a terrible ending, then you might enjoy the book. But for some people, the ending is done so poorly that it ruins everything that comes before it. I remember a number of years ago, there was a, a TV show that J.J. Abrams put out that I did not watch called Lost, that all of my friends were deeply obsessed with. And I, I didn't get past the first 20 minutes where there's like a panda bear on a tropical island or something ridiculous like that. But apparently, the ending of Lost is so bad that it ruins the rest of the series. Like, I had friends who were so upset when Lost ended that they, they were going to petition J.J. Abrams to give them their Lost, like, 12 hours of their life back. I guess it would have been more than that. But something about the ending was so bad that it ruined all of the good that came before it. This happens in people's lives as well. Uh, perhaps you are familiar with A.W. Tozer. He's one of the great spiritual authors in the last hundred years. He wrote this book called The Pursuit of God that's truly, it's incredible. But I was talking to someone from my seminary a couple of years ago, and he mentioned that he had heard a little bit about the end of A.W. Tozer's life, that he had died a bitter, cynical, angry, mean-spirited old man. And it was so disappointing. The way that he ended was so disappointing that it almost made it impossible for this friend of mine to read the good that he produced during his golden years. Or even someone like a Martin Luther, uh, the, the great Protestant reformer, somebody for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect. If you read Luther's writings at the end of his life where he is venomous with anti-Semitism, it makes it really hard to see the good in his earlier writings because there's something about his ending that betrays all of the good in his beginning. And this is true of Solomon. We, for the last three or four months, have been walking through the book of 1 Kings and specifically walking through the life of this one particular king, Solomon, and now we come to Solomon's end. And it is a tragic ending. It's not a joyful one. And the temptation as we come to the end of Solomon would be to see all of his failures at the end of his life cast this shadow over a life that really in so many ways showed tremendous promise. Uh, Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba and the rightful heir to the throne. And in the beginning of his reign, he has to thwart this attempt from one of his older brothers to steal the kingdom from him. And then as he steps into this role of ruling the nation of Israel, he receives this inauguration gift from the Lord. God says, I'll give you whatever you want. That is a terrifying opportunity for somebody who's like 18 or 19 years old when he becomes king. One, you're the king of a small nation. Two, God's going to give you whatever you want. Terrifying prospect. 
But Solomon, in his wisdom, asks for wisdom. And again, he shows such promise that God says, because you've asked for this, I will make your heart wise. And so Solomon takes that wise heart of his, and he uses all of that wisdom in service of doing what his father could never do, which was to build the temple of God. Because his father David was a man of bloodshed, and God says, my temple won't be built by somebody who has blood on their hands. And he builds this tremendous temple some 15 years into his reign. It's, it's all the more tremendous when you look at the symbolism of the temple that essentially Solomon, in his wisdom, out of love for God, builds a microcosm of the Garden of Eden. The temple that Solomon builds is a replica of Eden, but covered in gold, complete with cherubim standing at the gates to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, just as the gates of Eden are guarded after the fall by cherubim. And Solomon issues this tremendous prayer. It's one of the great prayers of the Bible in his early years, where he prays that this temple that he's built would be the sort of thing that causes the nations outside of Israel to hear of the greatness of the God of Israel. That this temple that he's built is actually a, it's a missionary act. He wants the nations to hear of the glory of the one true God and to come to this place and to worship that one true God. And for a while, it seems like Solomon's prayer is being answered. For a while, you have people like the Queen of Sheba who are coming to the nation of Israel saying, I've heard about this God that you serve, and I've heard about the wisdom of your king. For a while, it seems like God's promise to Abraham that in his descendants the whole world will be blessed might actually be coming true in Solomon. It might be the fulfillment of what Israel has waited on. But at the end of Solomon's life, where we found ourselves last week and again this week, Solomon is no longer concerned with the nations hearing about the greatness of the God of Israel. He's far more concerned with the gods of the nations being honored in Israel. At the end of Solomon's life, he marries hundreds of foreign women. That is an insane reality to me. But he marries hundreds upon hundreds of people all of whom worship different gods. And year by year by year, Solomon's unfaithfulness to the God of Israel in his life slowly turns the faithfulness of Solomon's heart cold. And year in and year out, marrying hundreds of people, worshiping hundreds of gods, Solomon slowly turns from the Lord and he turns towards the gods of the nations. And then this gift, that wisdom, this gift of wisdom that Solomon's been given becomes a curse because that wise heart of Solomon's that was used to build the temple of the living God is now used in service of what Solomon loves instead of the living God, which is the gods of the nations. And so with all of the wisdom that God has given him, he turns it against the one from whom it is derived and he begins to build idols and he begins to build temples for idols for the gods of the nations. Perhaps the greatest abomination in the life of Solomon is that on the hill east of Jerusalem, he builds a temple to the god Moloch. And Moloch is a god of which we know very little. But what we do know is that Moloch was worshipped through child sacrifice. And so Solomon moves from being this man that the Bible says, love the Lord, to being this man who in full view of the temple he built in his youth now builds an altar where Israel can offer their children to a false god. And this is where Solomon ends up. Even after all his promise, his heart turns and every gift that he was given by God, he uses to curse the God who gives every good and perfect gift. And what we're left with is how God will respond 
to Solomon's heresy, for lack of a better term. And that brings us to our text for the evening. In 1 Kings chapter 9, or chapter 11, verse 9, we're told that the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your sons. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So God's response to Solomon's idolatry is threefold. First, it's anger. There is a profound sense of fury that comes from God as he sees what Solomon does with the wisdom that God has given him. The second is judgment. And we'll get to that in the later portion of the text where God raises up adversaries in judgment against Solomon for what he's done. But the third thing is mercy. But first, we see anger and we see judgment. The the anger and the judgment of God is an interesting topic to deal with in our day and age. You may or may not remember this, but in sort of the mid-2000s, there was this pop-level movement that a lot of journalists called the New Atheism. And it was led by these four or five thinkers, Richard Dawkins, who was a biologist, Daniel Dennett, who was a philosopher, Sam Harris, who was a neuroscientist, and then the late Christopher Hitchens, who was a cultural critic. And it was called the New Atheism, but really all that, that happened in the New Atheism was that all the things atheists had been saying for a couple hundred years were published in easily digestible books, but in a worse format. So in case you're wondering, most like legitimate atheists were really embarrassed by the New Atheists because they sounded real dumb. But they became New York Times bestsellers. And one of the things that that each of these authors sort of really went after in their criticism of religion was the the seemingly angry God of the Old Testament. And one of the other things specifically that uh, Richard Dawkins went after was the jealousy of God in the Old Testament. He said, what what sort of a, a supreme being is so insecure that when people worship a different God than him, he gets this angry? And maybe that's your question. You see sort of the anger of God in the Old Testament around things like idolatry, and you're like, I don't really get what the big deal is. He seems to be a little bit insecure, like Mr. Dawkins would say. Maybe you are a Christian, maybe you aren't a Christian. But no doubt, when when Dawkins, Dennett, Harris, and Hitchens talked about the jealousy of God making him feel or seem insecure, they probably had passages like ours in mind. So what is going on here that God is so angry Well, I think the the problem with the criticism of this makes God seem insecure is rooted in the fact that most of us don't actually understand the overarching metaphor that the Bible uses to describe God's relationship to Israel. The, The way that the Bible describes God's relationship to Israel is a marriage. That that God, in some unique way, has wed himself to this nation. He has married himself to Israel. The New Testament says the same thing about Christ and the church, that Christ's bride is the church. And within that framework, 
When the church goes after other gods, or when Israel, like Solomon, begins to worship other gods, what's happening here is actually an act of adultery. And when you frame it like that, when you think about it like that, the only rational response from a good God would be anger. Like, like imagine for a moment that there's a man who's walked in on his wife cheating on him, and he gets angry about it, like furious about it. Would your response be, you seem a little insecure, bud? No. If he walks in on his wife cheating on him, and his response is, huh, you would say, what's wrong with you? Like, you clearly didn't actually love her, or there's, there's something wrong with you. Your response does not uh, your response is not proportional to the seriousness of what has just taken place. The only right response in that situation is anger. And, and this is what's happening in, in the Old Testament. This is what Solomon is doing by worshiping these other gods. He's committing adultery in the eyes of God. And God, not because he's this mean-spirited, insecure sky monster, but because he's this loving God who's made a covenant with his people, is furious He's angry with Solomon about this. That is the only rational response from a good God. For him to not be angry would make far less sense. He is outraged at what Solomon has done. You know, last week I mentioned uh, this great figure from church history who's been on my mind lately, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine writes his own autobiography. I guess that's kind of contained in the word autobiography that you wrote it yourself. But he writes his, his biography, and he begins with this famous statement. He says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we rest in thee. You know, as I consider this, this sort of criticism, the, the anger of God, as, as though somehow God's anger in the Old Testament against idolatry and sin undermines his goodness, I have to think that, that if what Augustine says is true, that, that we have been made for the God whose image we bear, and if what Scripture says is true about this God, that he is goodness itself, that, then to me, the only rational response from a good God in the face of people in his image seeking a lesser good in a created thing is anger. I think I would have to ask, what sort of a good God knowingly lets people serve things that cannot bring them joy or happiness or success or salvation with total indifference? No, if our hearts are restless until they rest in the triune God of heaven and earth, then why would he not be outraged when we think that we found rest in idols made of stone? We've settled for far less. In C.S. Lewis's words, we're far too easily pleased. God is outraged at Solomon's adultery and the fact that Solomon thinks that in these gods he has found hope when he has in fact disconnected himself from the only hope he could ever know. And so God responds in his anger. In verse 14, we're told that he raised up an adversary against Solomon. The term adversary is used three times, that Solomon, or God rather, in his anger towards Solomon, raises up adversaries. The, the literal Hebrew term here says that God, in his anger, raises up Satans against Solomon. And this is important for us to understand. Uh, the term Satan is used in different ways in the Bible. Uh, there, the term Satan literally means adversary or accuser. 
And so there are those who are accusers or adversaries who are called Satans, and then there is the spiritual being called Satan. So it's an adjective to describe the way that someone is, or it's actually a proper noun to describe a particular reality. It's sort of like in Dora the Explorer, where you have Swiper, and Swiper is his proper name, but what does Swiper do? He's swiping, right? It's this little fox demon that chases them around the woods. So you have Swipers, people who swipe stuff, but then you have Swiper, who is the one doing the swiping. And much in the same way, you have Satans, who are adversaries, But then you have Satan, who is the one reality that the Bible so often describes as the devil. So in Solomon's rebellion, God raises up adversaries against him. One of them is a man named Hadad the Edomite. We're told in verse 14, he was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian. They came to Paran and took with them men from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who gave him a house, assigned him an allowance of food, and gave him land. Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage to the sister of his own wife the sister of Tapines, the queen. The sister of Tapines bore him Ganuba the son, whom Tapines weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Ganuba was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. When Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, he said to Pharaoh, let me depart. And Pharaoh responded, what have you lacked? And he asked again, let me depart. So the first of the Satans that is raised up against Solomon is specifically this man named Hadad, who is an Edomite. Hadad's story is fascinating to me. What we're told in the text is that Hadad's family was killed by David. And so in sort of this way of preserving his life, the servants of his father sneak him over into Egypt. It reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me of Anastasia, the Disney movie, uh, where sort of this kingdom is torn down and the servants of the king try to preserve the daughter of the king, Anastasia. The other thing it reminds me of is the prince's bride. And and here's why it reminds me of that. In The Prince's Bride, there is this character named Enrico Montoya, and he sees his father killed in his youth by the six-fingered man, something like that. I don't know. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. And in seeing his father die, he sort of becomes hell-bent on revenge. He's outraged at what has happened, and so he spends his whole life preparing to seek revenge on the person who killed his father. And sort of in the culmination of the movie, he he finds the man who did it, and he sort of chases him around the room with a sword, saying, my name is Enrico Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, again and again and again. But this is sort of the life that Hadad has had. His, His family has been killed by David, he flees, sort of like Anastasia, to Egypt, and he spends his time in Egypt for the next 20, 30, 40 years, developing this burning hatred against the house of David this desire to see David's family destroyed for what they did to his family. But his story should sound familiar to you not just because it sort of reflects Disney movies and fantasy movies from the 80s. Let me, let me explain it again. He flees into Egypt as a foreigner, but somehow he's welcomed into Pharaoh's house. He becomes a prince of Egypt. When he finds out that David is dead, he goes to the Pharaoh and he says, let me go. And Pharaoh says, no. And he says, let me go again. And finally, Pharaoh says, yes. His story is the story of the nation of Israel. He is recapitulating the story of Israel. 
He wants to go back to Canaan, the land that Israel is in now. And just like Israel went back to Canaan, there were people in that land that Israel had to drive out, except the person that needs to be driven out now are not the Canaanites, but it's Solomon. The, the, the story of Israel is flipped on its head, where Hadad becomes the hero, and Solomon is now the villain, the one who worships false gods, who sacrifices his children to them. And God raises up another adversary against Solomon. It's the man Rezon, the son of Eliada, who fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men about him and became the leader of a marauding band after, killing, after the killing by David. And then he went to Damascus. He lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So you have to the south, Hadad, recapitulating the story of Israel in the Exodus, except now Solomon is the villain who must be driven out. And then to the north, you have this man, Rezon. Rezon's story should sound familiar to you too. He flees from his king into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, he gathers mighty men to himself. And then he returns and he becomes king. His story is the story of David, except the king that he wants to overthrow, the Saul in the story, it's Solomon. Solomon becomes the villain in all of the stories where Israel was once the hero. These are the sort of adversaries that God raises up against him. So, so what is God doing here? What is he after in, in raising up these people with stories that sound so much like Israel's, but now the king of Israel is the villain? So a, a couple, probably months ago, I don't even know if she remembers this, but I was a uh, talking with Francis, and she asked me if I had confirmed whether somebody was going to be able to serve in some capacity in some sort of a service project we had lined up. And uh, I said, I've texted them like two or three times. They haven't responded, so I don't really know what to do with that. And I was kind of frustrated by the fact that the person hadn't responded. And Francis is kind of standing at the door of my office, and she thinks for a second, and she goes, well, now you know how it feels. (laughs) You may not remember saying this, but here's Here's the reality. I don't respond to people's text messages, not out of being malicious or or mean-spirited. I just forget to respond. But in my mind, it's not that big of a deal to forget to respond until someone forgets to respond to me. And and now that, that I am the one on the receiving end of my sin, now sin is a big deal. I guess not responding to a text message probably doesn't fall under the category of sin. It could. We'll debate it afterwards. (laughs) The the point being, in our own minds, what we're doing is never really as bad as it actually is until someone does it to us. And I would venture to say that for Solomon, he does not feel the sting of his own evil. He doesn't feel the weight of what he has become until he becomes the villain in Israel's story. And God raises up these adversaries that makes Solomon the villain in Israel's story so that he can see the weight of what he has actually done and who he has actually become. We're in this season of Lent, and my prayer is not that God would raise up Satans in your life to persecute you. But my prayer is that by the Spirit, as as you're reflecting on the way that your sin made the cross necessary, that God would, by His grace, enable you to see the weight of your own sin the way that other people see it. That you would, you would be able to see the, the heinousness of what you do 
when it's done to other people, that you you would see it in yourself, that you wouldn't find ways to excuse your own sin and, and make it out to be not so bad, but that you would feel the weight in your own person as the Spirit convicts. God makes Solomon the villain in Israel's story so that Solomon can see this is what you've truly become. There's one more Satan that is raised up against Solomon. It's a man named Jeroboam in verse 26, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerada, a servant of Solomon whose mother's name was Zeruiah, a widow. He also lifted up his hand against the king. So you have three people from three people groups that all oppose Solomon in light of his sin. You have Hadad the Edomite, You have Rezon, a Gentile from Damascus, and you have Jeroboam, who is a Jew from Solomon's own court. These three people are raised up in judgment against Solomon for his sin, but what's fascinating here is that you skip a thousand years into the future, and there are people from three people groups who oppose Jesus. There is Herod the Gentile who tries to kill Jesus during his birth. There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus' own countrymen, who oppose his gospel. And they're the Gentiles in the nation of Rome who crucify him. Solomon is persecuted by the Edomites. He's persecuted by the Gentiles. He's persecuted by the people of Israel. Jesus is persecuted by the Edomites, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. Solomon is persecuted by these people for his own sin. Jesus is persecuted by them for your sin. He faces the adversaries that we deserve in our place just as Solomon faced these adversaries for his own shortcomings. But here's what's interesting to me that would be easy to miss, is that God's response to Solomon's idolatry, it begins with anger, it moves to judgment. But finally, he says in verse 11, since this is your practice, you have not kept my covenant, my statutes that I've commanded you. I will tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant, yet for the sake of David your father. I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. In the midst of this judgment, God is furious. He says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, but I'm also going to show you mercy. And yet it's not a mercy that you've warranted. It's it's not a mercy that you've done anything to deserve, but for the sake of another, for the sake of your father David, I will not crush you like I ought to crush you. Interesting, um, a couple years ago, before I was the pastor here, I was the janitor here. Um, And this was an interesting job for me. Uh, It was interesting because from 9 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock at the morning, all I had to do was get the building clean. So like, I could show up to work at 4 o'clock in the morning. I could show up at 9 o'clock at night. I could show up at 9 o'clock at night and sleep on the couch for six hours and then wake up and clean the church. I I just had to get it done, right? Um, That's a terrifying and unwise level of freedom to give to like a 20-year-old. And so I would show up to the church and I would like half-heartedly clean things and I would like like empty the trash bins, but I would kind of look at them and be like, I mean, they're only like three-fourths of the way full. Let's just leave it another day. Or, this floor is not that dirty. I don't think it's gross. I'm not mopping it. And so, lazy Travis skated by for a long time with kind of half-heartedly cleaning this building. Um, and one day, the, uh, 
the guy who was over me, uh, an incredibly merciful man, had a conversation with me. And he said, listen, the reason why I haven't come down hard on you for the fact that you're half-butting this in more stern terms than that is because I love your parents. <laughs> the reason why I'm not crushing you because of how poorly you're doing here is because of your parents. It's not because you're doing a great job. So please, do better. It was, it was mercy for the sake of another. Not because I had done anything to warrant it. And here's what God says to Solomon. I am going to tear the kingdom from you, but I won't do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father David. And then he says, I'm going to tear it from your son, but even your son, I won't take it all away from him. Why? For the sake of your father David. You will receive mercy not because you deserve it, but for the sake of another. And this sits, I think, at the heart of the gospel message that you and I receive mercy not for our own sake, not on account of anything we've done, but for the sake of another. Not because we've failed to warrant the judgment of God, not because we've done anything to deserve his forgiveness, not because God is under any obligation to save, but for the sake of Christ Jesus, he shows mercy on us. This is what we mark when we move to the Lord's Supper in every week of our gathering. That we hold up the elements, the bread. This is my body broken for you, for your sake. This is my blood poured out for you, for your sake. Solomon does nothing to deserve the mercy of God, and yet God even still pours it out. And so it is with you and I. That we are spared the, the adversary spared the wrath, spared the judgment of God, not because we've warranted it, but for the sake of the true son of David in Jesus Christ.